Hi, everybody. It's so great to be with you this morning. My name's Chris. I'm the Senior Minister at Andover Baptist Church, and it's a joy to be able to uh, finish our Aftermath series that we've been doing together for the last four weeks, and uh, this is the last part of that series. Now, when I was growing up, uh, and particularly in my sort of early teenage years, I loved technical Lego. I used to save my birthday and my Christmas money and couldn't be happier than I was out there buying the latest technical Lego kit and getting to build it. Cars, lorries, trucks, all of those kind of things. Now, I've got to be completely honest with you. I haven't lost that love of a Lego technical model kit. In fact, this is one I've completed in the not-too-distant past. Um, I don't know whether it's appropriate for a middle-aged man to still enjoy playing with Lego and making uh, these sorts of things, but I still love it. I find it relaxing and all of that kind of stuff, except for when they don't work. And I've got to be honest with you, I built this one uh, when I had some time off, a, a week off, a few uh, months ago, a couple of months ago maybe, and, uh, and I love it, and it's fantastic, but it doesn't work. There's something not quite right with it, because when I try to drive it forward, the wheels at the back don't want to turn around, and the problem is there is a gearing issue, because this is very complicated, I can't show you it all, but you know, there's lots going on underneath here, and for some reason I've managed to build the gears such that when one of the back wheels goes round, the other one wants to spin in the opposite direction, which means I've got to fix it, right? Something foundational in this model is not quite right. Now, I could force it, I could force it to move, but if I force it, I'm pretty sure all that technical stuff underneath here, all those gearing and cogs and everything that are going on in here will just explode and the whole thing will just fall apart. The problem is that the fix I need to make is deep down in here. Now, I should have tested this before I built the rest of it but I didn't. And now I've got this problem because something in the foundation of this model is not right. I'm going to have to take the whole thing apart to find the problem and fix it again. And when I realized this would make a great talk illustration, I decided not to fix it until I got to share it with you. So this afternoon, all of this is going to come apart and it's all going to be fixed. Now, when something in the foundation of something isn't quite right, it can cause a whole load of issues. If we haven't got the foundation right and things don't operate properly, then it can result in damage or an explosion or maybe even worse. And what is true for a Lego model is true for our lives too. I'm going to hide this away now because I know there are some of you watching right now who are more concerned with the Lego model than they are with what I'm about to say. So I'm going to put it down here so you don't get too distracted. You can just see the top of it, actually. But anyway, we're going to crack on. Today, in this last part of this Aftermath series, we're going to continue to look together at what happened after the first Easter when Jesus rose, rose from the dead. And today we're talking about clearing the way. We've been learning about the spread of the news of this amazing event and how the first followers of Jesus were transformed from carrying people afraid from their lives, in some cases even denying knowing Jesus, transformed into bold witnesses and proclaimers of Jesus' message. And what changed everything for them was that they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And that was the reason for their faith, the basis for their words and actions, and the foundation upon which they now built their lives and upon which the church started moving and growing. Now, why is this so important? Why, 2,000 years later, are we wanting to talk about it in a series like this? Why are we wanting to learn from it, read the stories of that moving and growing, and see what prompted that growth and how it happened? Why would we want to do all of that? 
Well, I think this is so important for us today because those who want to debate the Christian faith or who want to cast doubt and even ridicule on it usually start their questioning and debating from a different place to the place those first followers of Jesus started. People like Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists who want to tear down the claims of Christianity often start their arguments from an attack on the Old Testament stories or on obscure theologies. But you see, those aren't the foundation of the Christian faith. Those aren't the starting point or why the message of Jesus spread like wildfire and reached billions of people. Those things aren't why I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, we can have conversations about those things. They're great things to talk about, but they aren't the foundation of the Christian faith. And this series is about answering the question, well, what is the foundation then? What is faith built on? And this is so important because to have the foundation right means everything else follows. But otherwise, just like my Lego model, things can easily break down if the foundation's not right. They can be damaged, and damage can be caused, and people might even walk away. If you've rejected the claims of Christianity because you struggle with some of those more obscure concepts or difficult Old Testament stories, then you've rejected the wrong thing. You're trying to build on the wrong thing. If you've rejected Christianity because you've been convinced by the arguments of those in the new atheist movement, you've probably been convinced by an argument that isn't the basis or the foundation of the Christian faith. In this series, we've been trying to explore and to encourage you to explore the true foundation. And if you are a Christian, maybe at college or university or work or wherever it might be that you are, people want to debate these things with you. Well, it's really important that you understand the foundation of your faith to help you in those debates. Or maybe for you, it's the debate at work or the throwaway comment or the post you see on social media and you feel attacked sometimes or maybe even shaken. Well, for you, remembering the fundamentals, remembering what your faith is actually built on is really important. And maybe you've been struggling with your faith. And maybe that's because some of the foundations aren't right. And to be reminded of what it is we build on, what it is are the building blocks of the foundations for your faith will help you in some of those struggles and doubts. It's my hope that the things we've been talking about equip you and me for engaging with people with what is really important and demonstrating what the foundation of the Christian faith really is. So let's get back to the remarkable spread of the message of Jesus and the birth of those first churches. Last week, we looked at this incredibly pivotal moment in the history of the spread of Christianity and the building of the church. And it was about this question, who was God for? Was God for everyone or was God only for a select group of people? And one of Jesus' first followers and an eyewitness to his resurrection, a guy called Peter, he had this defining moment where everything changed for him when he visited with a Roman centurion called Cornelius. And he came to realize that God was for everyone and not just for a select group of people. And that caused quite a stir and some big reactions. No one really likes change, do they? But Peter had come to believe what others including another one of Jesus' first followers, a guy called Paul, had long believed that Jesus was for everyone. You can go and catch up with that talk last week on our YouTube channel if you want to do that. But Paul had been going around telling people about Jesus, everybody. He'd been spending time establishing communities of faith in towns and cities. 
And one of those places was a city called Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And he was working there with his friend Barnabas. And Antioch was not a Jewish city. It was primarily a Greek and Roman place. But lots of people were responding to the message of Jesus, the message that Paul and Barnabas were sharing with them. And the stories of what was going on in Antioch was filtering back to Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of this new Christian movement. And some people back in Jerusalem, they didn't like it. Some who thought that the old ways were the best, that the old traditions were still to be held on to at any cost, who thought that Jesus was only for people like them, they didn't like it. So some people headed off to Antioch from Jerusalem to sort this situation out. So they go to Antioch without the authority of the church leaders in Jerusalem, but they go anyway, and they go to correct Paul and to sort out Paul and Barnabas. And that's where we pick up the story, and we pick it up in this book in the New Testament part of the Bible, which is all about the story of the birth of these first churches and the kind of wrestling matches that took, uh, that took place as these people began to work out what this new Christian faith would really be all about. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and it says this, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So these people arrived in Antioch and they said this kind of stuff. For Jewish people, and remember Jesus was a Jew, the Jewish faith was the birthplace and foundation of this new Christian movement. And the Jewish faith was founded on commands and practices given by God to Moses hundreds of years before. But Jesus had told them that he'd come to do a new thing. But for Jewish people, circumcision was the mark or the sign that you belonged to the Jewish faith. It was a mark or a sign of the old covenant, the old set of promises that God had made with the Jewish people through Moses. So essentially they're saying that unless you're like us, unless you have the same religious background as us, unless you do the same religious things as us, you can't be in with Jesus. But that wasn't what Jesus had taught. And it's not what Paul was teaching or doing either. Paul was telling people that it was by faith alone in Jesus that they were saved, that they joined in this new movement, that they became followers of Jesus, not by any religious practice or ritual. Now that would have been scandalous to a Jew. But they're having trouble with change. And before we judge them too harshly, let's remember how much trouble we ourselves often have with change. You don't have to be around church for too long to realize that change can sometimes be hard for people. But what they're doing is bringing some of their old ways into the new. They're trying to drag things that were important in the old order of things into the new order of things. They're blending the old laws with the new teaching of Jesus. Well, this all caused quite a reaction. Let's look at verse 2. So verse 2 I, uh, says this. Can we have verse 2 up? Oh, thank you. So <laughs> this is what it says in verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sh a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. So this caused quite a situation, a, sh a sharp dispute, a fight, basically. So they send Paul and Barnabas, the leaders of the church in Antioch, to Jerusalem for a discussion. Now remember, this was all really new. This was about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and it was all still very new to all of them. And the church is growing like crazy, and they're just trying to figure it all out. 
Well, let's look at what happens next. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through, uh, through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So on the way to Jerusalem, they stop at various points and tell the stories of what God has been doing. Well, they get to Jerusalem and they tell everyone there what they've seen God has been up to. And the head of the church in Jerusalem is a guy called James, the brother of Jesus. And a few years before, James was not at all convinced that Jesus was who he claimed he was until the resurrection. And now 20 years later, this skeptic is now the head of the church in Jerusalem. That is so great and such amazing evidence that something really did happen with Jesus, that he really did rise from the dead. And I think this is really poignant too, because just 13 years later, James would be executed for his faith, for believing his brother really was who he said he was, and for his leadership in the church. And now, with everybody together in Jerusalem, a big discussion begins. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. It's this same question again. Who is Jesus for and what should be required of them in order that they can be his followers? Is Jesus only for people like us? Or is Jesus for new people but only if they'll do some of the things that we've done. And notice who's asking the question. I think this is fascinating. This is some of the people from the party of the Pharisees. So they are involved in this new church. This is amazing because it was the Pharisees who followed Jesus around and tried to trick and trap him. It was the Pharisees who were responsible for having Jesus arrested and killed. And now 20 years after Jesus, we find a bunch of Pharisees who are Jesus followers and leaders because they're involved in this conversation and leaders in the church. What do you think changed their mind? Well, it wasn't the parables that Jesus told or even the sermons he preached, not even the miracles he'd done. They'd heard and seen all of that and they didn't believe. What changed their minds? Well, I think it can only be the resurrection of the one they had worked so hard to put to death. But they were convinced now and they, were, they had become Jesus' followers. It's amazing and fabulous but they were still struggling with change. Well, let's look at the response. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So Peter is first up. And this is amazing because Peter and Paul had had a bit of a thing, a bit of a to-do previous to this. The younger Paul had publicly rebuked Peter in Antioch. But this shows us the heart of Peter. He's first up to speak in support of Paul. He's more concerned with his commitment to God's truth than he is to his personal reputation or image or to any hurt that might have been caused him in the past. And Peter explains the story that we looked at last week. And he says this, God who knows the heart. God sees the heart, not the outward appearance or the religious rituals. God sees the heart. And then he goes on. 
Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And Peter's incredibly honest here. He says, look, we couldn't keep the rules ourselves. We couldn't keep all these religious rules. Why would we expect anyone else to do it? And then he goes on to talk about the fact that everyone can be saved, that we are all saved just as they are. And I love this order here. I think this is really interesting. He says, he doesn't say they are saved like we are. He says, we are saved like they are. A really important order of events there, saying we are all in this together. And people who aren't Jews, who are becoming Christians, are just as important as anybody else. We're joining with them not the other way around. What once was only for the Jews is now for everyone. God has thrown open the doors and said everyone is welcome. Peter is saying we need to move towards those people, not away from them. God is doing something new and we need to be a part of that. And that's going to mean letting go of some of our traditions, some of the things we grew up with, some of the things that we held as being fundamental to our identity. We need to set those things aside for the sake of sharing Jesus with everyone. You know, it can be really easy to say that we are for everyone, to say that we get that Jesus is for everyone. But, you know, sometimes words are cheap. Actions are what's really important. We actually need to do something. We need to clear the way to help those who don't know Jesus to find him. So what should they do? Well, they go on debating. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. He said, brothers, he said, listen to me. So how's this debate going to be resolved? Well, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He'll know what to do. He'll know what Jesus would have wanted too. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. Interesting that he talks about Peter using this term Simon because Simon was his original name and it was changed to Peter. It's almost like his Jewish name. I think James is using Peter's Jewish name as a reminder of his Jewish background to establish his credibility. Well, then he goes on with the rest of his speech over the next few verses. He uses some of the Old Testament prophets. He says, James says, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. Our prophets told us about this. We've been called by God to be a light to the world. We always have been called to be a light to the world, to the whole world. And that's happening right now. James is saying, remember our history. Remember our scriptures. They really help us understand where we have come from. But now something new is happening. So he concludes with this in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, here's the conclusion, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is the defining moment, the concluding moment in this whole debate. We should not make it difficult. We should not put unnecessary obstacles in the way for people who are wanting to turn to God. You know, 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the church leaders gathered in Jerusalem did a brave and extraordinary thing. And we shouldn't underestimate what they did because they detached the new movement of Jesus from the religion of Judaism. Not because there was anything wrong with Judaism, but because it was a means to an extraordinary end. And out of the fertile soil of Judaism came God's one and only son, the one who ushered in the new. But the new had come and it was time to move forward. 
You know, sometimes it's difficult for churches to detach from their traditions and rituals and change and move forward. And of course, there is much that we should hold on to. The message of Jesus and his death and resurrection never changes. But the way we present that, the way we do things must change and move on in order to share that glorious message with new and changing generations so that we aren't making it difficult for people to turn to God. What do we need to detach from? Are there some things that aren't helpful that are our traditions rather than our things that God has mandated? We're finding some of those things, aren't we, during this COVID season. God has reminded us of what is really important. You know, and we've got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build on that for the future. Because sometimes we do make it difficult in the language we use, in the things that we do, in the relationships that we have, in the accessibility of the stuff, in some of our arguments, some of the way we do things. Sometimes we do make it difficult and it is time to clear the way. You know, our mission statement here at Andover Baptist Church says, and it starts like this, we exist to love God, but then it goes on to say, and love people and grow together to be more like Jesus. It starts with loving God, but because we love God, we want to love people. And love for people, especially people who are far from God, means we need to do everything we can not to make it difficult to clear the way. Because you see, when you begin to view every single person that you meet, every single person, no matter what their skin color, their gender, their sexual orientation, their age, their economic status, every single person as made in the image of God and a potential place for the dwelling of the Spirit of God, well, you begin to treat them well. And you long to be able to share with them what God has done for you and can do for them through the grace of Jesus and to clear the way to ensure that they can find the God who gave everything for them. And as we finish this series, I want to remind us all of what it's been all about. It's been about getting the foundation right in our faith. It's been about getting things right so that we can move forward. Not like this. It's been about getting things right so that when troubles come or difficulties arise or debates start, we don't explode or fall apart to be now getting things right so that we have a solid foundation for our faith. And the resurrection of Jesus was the foundation of the faith for the early church. It was where the first followers of Jesus got their belief and their confidence and their boldness. It was what they believed and what they preached. And, and it was why it was so accessible to so many people, because that's what they talked about. And that's not difficult. It was clearing the way for people to truly encounter what really mattered. And of course, many of them had seen the resurrection of Jesus with their own eyes. The resurrection is the foundation for our faith. And we need to clear the way to help people understand that. And I want to say, if you're not a Christian, if you've rejected the claims of Christianity for any other reason than that you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you are rejecting the wrong thing. And I want you in to invite you to look again. And if you are a Christian, but you're struggling with doubts or questions because of things that are happening in your life or questions you or others are asking, I just want to invite you to look again at the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and go back to that. And if you find yourself in a conversation about faith and the arguments are difficult and complex and challenging, then the way to deal with that is to say this, look, I hear you. I get that some of those things are difficult and complex, and we can have a conversation about that at some point. But I just need you to know those things are not why I'm a Jesus follower. 
I'm a Jesus follower because the evidence is overwhelming that he lived and walked around on the earth 2,000 years ago. The evidence that he was put to death on a cross is overwhelming. And the evidence that he really did rise from the dead is pretty overwhelming too. And that's the ball game right there. Because if someone can rise from the dead, then what they said and promised about who God is and how he feels about us is true. And that's the foundation of my faith. That's the foundation of our faith. And can I just uh, suggest a couple of really simple next steps. If you'd like to explore the evidence for the resurrection, there's a book called The Case for Miracles by an investigative journalist called Lee Strobel. It's a great and easy read, and it explains the evidence for the resurrection. If you'd rather watch something than read, go to YouTube and simply type in there, Lee Strobel, S-T-R-O-B-E-L, evidence for the resurrection, and you'll find a whole load of videos, short ones and slightly longer ones, where he explains all of that. But it's worth exploring. It's worth remembering that that's the foundation of the Christian faith. If a man can predict his own death and rise again, then he's worth listening to, he's worth following, and he's worth giving your whole life for. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this sure and certain foundation that we have for the Christian faith. I pray for anybody who's been watching and engaging with this today, who's rejected Christianity or the claims of Christianity for a different kind of reason. Lord God, I pray you give them boldness and courage to explore once again the claims of the resurrection, to get to the heart and the root of what the Christian faith is all about. For anybody who has doubts or anxieties or struggles in those debates about the Christian faith, help us, Lord God, to remember what it's really all built on. And Heavenly Father, I thank you most of all for sending your Son to walk on the earth, to die on a cross, and to rise again to provide the foundations for this movement, this church, that lives can be changed and transformed as they are founded on Jesus and upon his resurrection and upon all that that means for encountering you, knowing your love and your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. Amen.